Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, this morning we're going to start a, a new series of messages that we're calling Moments. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra chapter 9 with me today. Ezra chapter 9. And through that video, we wanted to show you a, a few moments in the life of our church past, present, and future, and to see some things that God is doing and kind of get a feel for those things, because our life is marked by by moments. There are certain times that that when we experience those things, they shape us, they kind of mold, and they craft who we are and how those moments are lived out. If you think of, of maybe a graduation, or you think of a wedding, or you think of the birth of a child, or you think of a death. You think of a medical diagnosis. You think of a job change. You think of these different moments that come in our lives. And when we have those moments, they shape us. They mark our lives. They define in so many ways who we are. And sometimes we have these shocking experiences that come, sometimes good, sometimes bad. There are these moments that will always kind of mold and craft who we are. There was a young man who had one on Easter Sunday. He was fast asleep, and his mom decided, this is a true story, it was in the news this week, his mom decided it was time for them to go to church. He would not wake up, true story, so she went in and she tased him to wake him up for church on Easter Sunday. And, and he goes, what, what are you doing? And she says, you've got to go to church. It's time to go to church. And he said, I'm going to call the police. And here's what she said. She says, you can call the police, UPS, DPS, call whoever you want. I don't care. We're going to church. That's what she said. So the police showed up. Now, she claims she just kind of zzzz, like close to him, but he's got a couple of marks on his leg, and, and this is kind of a bad thing. And so they asked her, why did you do this? And here's what she said. I don't think I did anything wrong because you're supposed to put God first, and that's all I was trying to do is tell my kids to put God first. I agree with that, however. <laughs> Let's go on record. We have three services here, so you have choice. You don't have to tase anybody, all right? Start waking them up for 8, 15, 10, right? You've got options, so we can do that. The series of messages we're about to go through is called Moments. It's going to be really different from, from where we've been because we've kind of been working our way through the book of Acts where we've taken kind of large pieces of Scripture and walked through them. For the next five weeks, we're going to kind of park on two verses out of the book of Ezra, and expand that based on biblical concepts and understand how that speaks to us right now. Back earlier this year, I was, I was praying about, God, what, what would you have for us, for, for the future of the church, for this year, what's ahead for us? What, what matters, what's important? And this passage of scripture, have you ever been reading in the Bible and something just kind of comes alive for you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like th- this happened when I came to this verse. One part in particular, Ezra chapter nine, verse eight. I'll give you a little backstory here in just a minute, but Ezra is a, is a priest. He's just come from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem. He's praying a prayer, and he says, but now, for a brief moment, that's the part that, that seized me, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant, giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we were slaves Our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. 
Today, I want to I take some time and I want to introduce some concepts that we're going to then further explore over the course of the next four weeks. And there was, there was a part of this that when I read it, it initially just jumped out at me when I read this, where Ezra says, but now for a brief moment. He says, look, there is this, this season, this moment, this point in time that is really important, and we don't want to miss this moment. When you see that word moment in the Old Testament, it, there's a Hebrew word that's there, and it has this idea of kind of a, a confined season of time. There's a, there's a window of time. It starts and it stops. It has this momentary idea to it. Oftentimes, you'll, you'll see this, this same root word used when you see that something happens suddenly, or it happens in a hurry, that there's this concept that there's this window of time, this moment that is there, and that's where you're living. That's where you find yourself. That's the point that you have to seize, this idea that there is a moment. And if we're going to talk about this today, then, it, then it's going to be helpful and healthy for us to talk about time and, and what we see about time in Scripture. Let's start with this, that God's perspective on time is different than ours. That God's perspective on time is different than ours. Anybody ever found that to be true? You think something should happen in one time and God sees fit to do it in another. Here's, here's what we see. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. The psalmist says that God's perspective on time is very different than ours. What seems like just a day to God, it feels like a thousand years to us. So God sees things differently to the point that God sees the big picture of time. We see the moment that we're in. But God sees how all those moments add up. He sees how they build up. God sees time from beginning to end. He's outside of time. So he sees the big picture of time and he understands what he's trying to accomplish for his purposes, for your best, in the midst of the moments of our lives. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, passage that, that may be familiar to some of us. Peter writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. God has a totally different perspective on time than we do. However, even though God sees the big picture of time, it's good for us to know that God operates in specific moments in time. There are specific moments in time when God chooses for certain things to happen, when God chooses to, to have things play out in a certain way, when God chooses to do certain things in your life. Let me give you a couple of uh, biblical ideas and examples of this. One that you'll find where God operates in a specific moment in time is in the book of Esther. This is relevant because Esther happens in the, in the same basic time as what we're going to read about in Ezra, same basic season in the Old Testament. And there was this Jewish girl named Esther who found her way to being the queen of Persia. And at the same time, there was a plot to destroy all the Jewish people. So she finds herself in a place of power when this bad thing is about to happen to her people. And Mordecai, who was kind of her mentor and her relative, speaks to her, and we see this, verse 12 of Esther chapter four. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows 
but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. She, she lived in a very specific moment in time. God had crafted and prepared that moment to be a time when he would work and move and do something in her life. And if she missed that moment, she would miss the time that God had for her. It's not just an Old Testament concept, but, but even the most basic of truths, Galatians chapter four, verse four, we read, but when the set time had fully come, some scripture versions will, will speak about the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship that even the very coming of Jesus Christ, that's what he's speaking about there, when Jesus was born, was in God's perfect timing. You know, we sometimes we think that maybe it was just random or God just kind of rolled the dice and said, oh, now's a good time to send Jesus. The truth is, when we get to the Christmas story, we're reminded every year that God sent Jesus at just the right time. It was a specific moment in which there was something that God wanted to accomplish because God operates in specific times in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15. Paul writes, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He says, look, the time that comes your way you are to make the most of it. We are to make the most of the moment that we are in. So whatever that moment is that you find yourself in right now, your role, your responsibilities, the crisis, the, the tragedy, the, the challenges, the opportunity, the victories that you're in, that scripture says we are to make the most of this moment. I, I really like the way that the King James Version says. I know sometimes there's, there's portions in the King James Version because it was written over 400 years ago that, that we kind of lose track of sometimes. But, but look at this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. It says, see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. I like, I like this phrase, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We are to make the most of, we are to redeem the time. There's a phrase that I heard years ago that, that has always stuck with me, and I know sometimes people can use it maybe even in a manipulative way, but that the opportunity of a lifetime is only good for the lifetime of the opportunity. Have you ever heard that? The opportunity of a lifetime is only good for the lifetime of the opportunity. So call now, and we'll throw in this set of knives, right? You hear that, <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? But there's real truth to that. Have you ever had a, a coupon that you want to redeem, but it's got an expiration date on it? And you take it and you go to use it, and they say, oh, sorry, sir, you can't use that because it's expired. And then you tell them, well, no, it's, it's fine, it's, it's good, like, I, I can still use that. And they're like, no, sir, you can't, because the time has run out. The moment to use that is no longer there. The opportunity of a lifetime only lasts for the lifetime of the opportunity. And that's why none of us have those great knives, right? That's the truth. <laughs> Why? Because God says, redeem that opportunity when it's there. Make the most of it. And look, there, there are some very significant moments in our lives. We talked about some of them. A graduation, a birth, a death. There, there's these moments that shape us. Not every moment is as significant as every other moment. But let me tell you this, every moment matters. I went to the wedding of some friends yesterday, which will always be one of the most significant moments in their lives, right? Right? But that wedding 
only sets them up for all the moments of their marriage that they have to make the most out of. Does that make sense? So like, don't, don't tell yourself that this moment doesn't matter. Every moment in your life makes a difference and it matters. And to that point, it's important for us to realize that nations have moments. Groups of people have moments. We are in a very unique moment as the United States of America. Not making a political statement, just would you agree? It's a unique time for us, right? We're in a unique moment as a church. That's something we're gonna spend some time talking about over the course of these next five weeks. What what does this moment mean for us as a church? And here's here's what I do not want you to miss over, over the course of these next few weeks. You have moments in your life. You're always in some moment. You can prepare for them. You can set the stage for them. You can try to seize them. You can try to make the good ones last and shorten the tough ones. You are in these moments, and we have to capture that. So so here's what I want to do. Why did Ezra say that? In verse 8, why did he say, but for this moment? Well, let's rewind this thing and and go back to the beginning of chapter 9, because I want to set the stage for the moment that he was in. If you, if you know anything about the, the Old Testament in this way, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books in the Old Testament. They're kind of partner books that tell similar stories. In fact, we'll look at, at passages in both over the course of the next couple weeks. And Ezra tells the story of how God's people at one time had rebelled against God. He had given them everything, but they chose to follow other gods. They worshiped idols. They did what they wanted to do. And God said, look, if you do that, at some point, I'm gonna let you be taken over by enemy forces. They're gonna take you into exile and you're gonna lose everything. And that's what happened to the Jewish people. They were taken from Judea, which was their land, from Jerusalem, that city, and taken away to the nation, the the empire of Babylon, where they served as exiles. And as that exile was coming to an end, some of the Jewish people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild that place. And you read about this in Nehemiah, how they rebuilt the walls. You read about it in Ezra, how they rebuilt the temple. And when you get to chapter eight, you find out that there's a guy named Ezra who was a priest. He was a teacher of God's word. He was living in Babylon, and he took a group of people back to Jerusalem. And one of his main goals was to teach them about God and about his word. So at this point in chapter nine, he's back He's led a group from Babylon to return to Jerusalem, and this is what we read, Ezra chapter nine, verse one. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra speaking, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Parasites, Termites, Jebusites, Ammonites, just just checking, just checking, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. They came to Ezra and, and basically get this. This is what they said. You know the thing that got us in trouble in the first place? We're doing it again. The very way in which we turned our backs on God, we're doing that same thing again. Now, I want to give a little word of instruction here because I think this is important. If you're you're looking in your Bible and you see any, like, subject headings there, it probably says something along the lines of Ezra's prayer about intermarriage. And I want you to understand that when the intermarriage was condemned, 
This did not necessarily have to do with race. It had to do with religion. Because there have been times over the centuries when people have used passages of scripture like this to say that interracial marriage is a sin in God's eyes. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about race, it's talking about religion. The problem wasn't so much that these people were from other countries. The problem was, is what they were saying was, look, Jewish people, when you marry these people who have other gods, have you ever heard the phrase unequally yoked? You ever heard that? When you marry these people who have other gods, what's gonna happen is you're gonna stop worshiping your God or you're at least gonna water it down and you're gonna feel pressure to start worshiping their God as well. And then the whole focus of what God said, that you should have no other gods before me, that you should be committed totally to me, you're throwing that away because of your convenience. You're throwing that away because of your desires. You're pursuing things outside of God's best for you instead of doing what God called you to do. So the point here was not one of race, it was one of religion. And I know I ask this a lot, but I, this is important. Does that make sense? Okay, that's good. Because like my heart broke. I heard a story this week. A friend of mine was telling me, a little boy who was playing with another little boy and, and the mom of the, the one little boy came over and pulled her son away and said, oh, no, honey, don't play with him. He's not like us. Like, that's not cool. You know that, right? In fact, that's not at all what this scripture is talking about. So sometimes people will try to even use scripture to clarify their own prejudice or racism. And the bottom line is, that's not true. That's deceptive. I'm pretty sure the Bible calls it sin. And so that's not at all what this passage is talking about. What this passage is talking about is that God says, I need to be first. I need to be number one in your life. I need to be the most important thing. And when they turned their backs on God, that's why they found themselves in exile. Now they're out of exile. They're back in Jerusalem, and they're going right back to turning their backs on God again because it's convenient for them. To that point, Ezra says this, verse three. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, my God. He's been on a mission to go to Jerusalem and teach them God's word and is finding out that they're going in the total opposite direction. He's appalled, it says. His heart's broken. And so at this point then, in verse six, it says that he prayed. He prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. You know what he does here is he, he calls out the moment that they are in. He's saying, look, this, this is not a good moment for us. I think one of the important things, if you're going to seize the moments that come your way, at some point, you have to identify it. You have to know what it is. We must take time to understand the moment we are in. What, what is it? The role, the responsibility, the opportunities, the challenges, the things that are ahead of you in this moment. You have to take time and identify it, recognize it for what it is, so that you can make the most of those times as a grandparent, in your job, 
in your role in your family, in your finances, in your health, in your, in your wherever that is in that season of life that you find yourself, in this moment, how do you identify the moment that you are in? And I think, I think this is really important that we talk about for a few moments this moment we are in. In, in general, let's talk about this moment that we find ourselves in right now. Three things that, that I want you to see, and we're gonna throw quite a bit of information here real quick. And I know this, this might not necessarily, you go, well, where, where is this in the Bible? Look, this may be a little bit more cultural analysis than biblical, but I think it'll make sense because what you'll find is there's some real parallels between where Ezra was and where we are in this moment. One of the things that we see in this moment is that we live in times of seismic change. We live in times of seismic change. What, what does that mean? It means that there are times when, you know, that word seismic has to do like with an earthquake, right? There are times when it feels like everything is shaking. And we live in one of those times. Dr. Sally Bunt is the um, dean of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And she's, she's written about what she calls the wormhole decade. This is interesting because a wormhole, if you're looking in terms like of astronomy, when something goes in a wormhole, it doesn't come out the same. And she's saying that that season of time at the turn of the millennium, so let's say 2001 to 2010. Does anybody remember 2001 to 2010? I hope so. Anybody? Right, okay, you remember, right? Was so seismic in the change that it brought. It was so challenging and transformational. Just think about it a little bit from our own experience. Anybody remember, this is the very beginning of that decade, does anybody remember September 11th, 2001? Did anything change after that? Everything changed after that. Because for the first time in almost 200 years, we as a nation were attacked on our own soil. Take that not just from maybe a, a political or a military form, but think of it even in an economic form. And maybe for some of us, this, this isn't of interest to us. But what happened in that same year is identified in the global economy were these nations that they called the BRIC nations in the global economy. Um, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. BRIC, B-R-I-C. Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And economists said, look, you're going to see a rise there. And what at that time was about 5% of the global economy has now shifted to be 20 to 30% of the global economy to those nations, which means that globally, everything's changing, which means that economically, things change for us. And whether we realize it or not, we've seen that in jobs and in challenges and in so many ways. Tra are you tracking with me? Happen, happened in that decade. Then if you continue to look at that decade, you'll not only see things that there was uncertainty in Europe and a global financial challenges. You had the Iraq war that happened in that same time. And then one of the hugest changes that happened, anybody heard of the smartphone? <laughs> Mobile technology, internet prolification to the point that I have everything I need at my fingertips so many times when it comes to knowledge, right? And then social media, and the effects that social media has had, not just in, in, in our own individual lives, but on nations, that there have literally been revolutions that have started through social media. And when you see these things, during that decade of time, so much changed. That's why they call it the wormhole decade, which has then led to the decade that we're in, so like 2011 to, you know, to 2020, that many refer to as a decade of equilibrium, disequilibrium, excuse me. A decade of disequilibrium. Why? Because so many things seem to be out of balance. So many things seem to have chaos and uncertainty to them. Has anybody seen this? 
Like, if you don't realize it, globally, this is a big deal to the point that there are refugee crises in Africa and the Middle East, so much so that there are so many displaced people in the world that one out of every 113 people is a refugee at this point in time. That's, we, we don't necessarily feel it where we are. That's huge on a global scale. It has led to youth unemployment in Europe in devastating numbers. And in so many different ways, we are seeing this. And if you don't think you're seeing this, look back the last couple years when there's been elections in particular. Have you heard of Brexit? Have you heard of the 2016 election in the United States? <laughs> and, and whether, no political statement here one way or the other. Since that election in 2016 in November, have you seen changes in our nation? Absolutely. This is all taking place. This is all happening. So we are in this season of seismic change, and it's affecting people. So in the same way that Ezra was dealing with people who had globally moved from Babylon back to Jerusalem, this telling change, we are in a moment like that. We not only live in a moment of seismic change, but we live in times of dangerous choice. We live in times of dangerous choice. And what I mean by that is we live in a season where by and large people say, look, you can choose to do whatever you want to do in your life. You can live however you want to live. So, and, and we'll unpack this in future weeks, but the challenge was that the Jewish people were saying, look, we want to marry who we want to marry. There's a good chance that for these, these uh, exiles that had returned, there was a shortage of wives. And they just, they just wanted to do what they wanted to do, but it was outside of God's best for them, so they were making these dangerous choices. And it's so true in our culture. Richard Swenson in his, uh, in his book, Margin, has written that if we earn a degree, get a raise, and buy a new house, we are automatically, and he puts this in quotes, better off. We think that we're making progress if we move in certain ways economically, financially, status-wise, right? Don't we think that way, especially in, in, in our nation? He goes on to say, though, but what about the depressed school teacher? and the recently divorced executive, the suicidal adolescent, or the octogenarian being force-fed in the nursing home, by what economic parameters do we measure their progress? And his point is, we call things progress that might not really be progressive in our individual lives. Does that make sense? Take it one more step. That our, that our culture is dismissing long-held beliefs about morality in so many different ways that it's shaking the very foundations of who we are as a nation. Now, I'm not, I'm not gonna open up any can of worms today. Like, there's all kinds of topics that we could pick on. I don't wanna open up any can of worms, not because I don't wanna do that, but because we're gonna wait till July to do that. Is that okay? <laughs> when we get to the book of Acts, we're gonna land at a point where we're gonna take several weeks and talk about some of the, the trending topics in our world right now and what scripture says about that. But there's an Anglican thinker named Theo Hobson and he has defined the steps of a moral revolution. This is interesting. He says that there's these three steps of a moral revolution. He says, first, that which was condemned must be celebrated. So what at one point people said was wrong, now we must say it's right. Have we seen anything like that happen? He says, then, he says, the second step is then that which was celebrated must be condemned. So what was right, you call wrong, and what was wrong, you call right. Have we seen any of that? We see it in so many different areas of the world. And then here's the third step. 
First, that which was condemned must be celebrated, then that which was celebrated must be condemned, and those who will not celebrate must also be condemned. So the reality is that if we're living in a world and a culture that is dismissing biblical truths, then a moral revolution revolution would mean that those of us who hold the biblical truths will be condemned instead of celebrated. These are times of dangerous choice, true? It gets worse. We also live in times of uncertain challenges. We live in times of uncertain challenges and, and for the sake of time, I, I won't unpack all of this, but they just did a, a, a revolutionary study in Europe where they interviewed young adults in Europe and asked them about their religious affiliations. Let me just give you France as an example. 26% of young adults in France claim to be Christian. Not that they go to church, not that they are devout. Just what is your affiliation? Where, where, where do you connect yourself? Only 26% of French young adults... And and that's part of Western Europe that was a bastion of Christianity. Does that make sense? Like, and we're watching that, and that's a declining number, and it's telling in this. There's a a group of people that's called the nuns. Now, I don't mean like like females that serve in the Catholic Church. This is N-O-N-E-S. These are people who, when you ask them, what religious affiliation do you have, they refer to themselves, and they say, I have none. So we call them nuns, people who say they have no religious affiliation. It's kind of a new sociological term. And they interviewed those in in Europe who would classify themselves as nuns. And one out of every five said they were, and you're you're learning all kinds of stuff here today, said they were a nonvert. You ever heard that term? Have you ever heard of somebody who's a convert? Where they convert from one religion to another? Well, the new term for somebody who leaves a religion is a nonvert. I left the religion that I had. One out of every five young adults in Europe who identifies as none in their religious affiliation is a nonvert. Said they left Christianity. The news here isn't one in five, it's the four in five who said they weren't nonverts. They said they never had any religious affiliation. They didn't leave it, they never had it. Their parents didn't pass along to them. Generationally, we're dealing with a generation that 80% of those who say they have no religious affiliation never had one at all. Does that make sense? Like that's, that's scary in the sense to say that Christianity is losing its foothold at the very center of, of what we would call Western civilization and the, the establishment of Christianity to the point that there's a commentator on all of this and he was writing about his own experience in Great Britain and he summed it up with this phrase, He said, my experience at the church, and he he gives all kinds of things, and at the end he says, at times it felt like I was witnessing the end of something. It feels like I'm witnessing the end of the strength of Christianity. We live in times of uncertain challenges, don't we? Well, Chad, that's, that's Europe. That's not the United States of America. But we're heading in that same path. And if you don't think that that can happen in North America, our neighbor to the north in Canada has very similar statistics. And we are on a a path leading in that same way towards secularization. So my my thought is we should all wring our hands and just hide in our basements. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Let's just be honest. We're going to get to this in the book of Acts. When Paul did his missionary journeys, how many churches did he visit when he first got to those towns? 
None. Why? Because the people that were there were nuns. They weren't Christians. He went into those places, and by the Holy Spirit, the world was changed. Do you still believe God can change the world through his people? Absolutely we do. Here's what I want you to see, because let's just unpack it in Toledo. We have drug epidemics in our city. We have human trafficking that is going on throughout our country. We have people with all kinds of hopelessness in their lives. What I want you to see is this is a special moment. The moment in which we live right now is a unique moment in time. That's why Ezra says, but now for a brief moment, in this moment in time, something special and something unique is happening. So what do we do? Here's what we're gonna do over the next four weeks. We must realize the moment that we are in. God has called us as a church and as his people to this unique moment in time. And we must identify the challenges of this moment What are the challenges that we face? And then we must seize the opportunities of this moment. And so we're gonna walk through these verses and unpack some things and look at what it says in other places in scripture because God has given us, there are moments of his stirring and of his grace and of his freedom and of his favor that Ezra talks about that you'll see throughout scripture that will challenge us. And during this time, we're gonna talk about our vision for the church. We're gonna talk about moments and what God has done. This is a picture that you'll see of the very first people who came together in the first Sunday in December, 1951, in a small storefront on Facet Street in East Toledo. And you can, you can see these people. And these were the families that began Calvary Assembly of God, that, that, that started Calvary Church because they said, there's too many people in Toledo who don't know Jesus. And in this moment, we're gonna do something about it. I'm so glad they did, aren't you? I mean, it's changed our lives because they were willing to say, I'm going to seize this moment. We're going to talk the next few weeks about the opportunities that we currently have as a church, what God's doing, the future that he has for us, how he wants to expand the work that's here, the way that he wants to work through our resources and the vision that he has to help people see life change. But I I don't want this to get lost in talking about the church. I want you to see the moment that you're in and what God wants to do in your life. So we're going to talk about how do you recognize the season that you're in? How do you make the most of both your past and your future? How do you deal with the distractions that come your way? How do you capitalize on the moment that you're in? And for some of you, there's a tendency to go, um, look, this is cool, but it doesn't really fit me because I'm, I'm too young to seize a moment or I'm too old, I've missed my moments, or my life's just, you you don't get everything else that's going on in my world right now, or maybe you just go, look, my moments are boring. I don't know that this is for me. Know this, your moments are not too far away or over and done. There is a moment that God wants you to seize right now, and some of you really need to hear this. God works in specific moments in time. So I've known people who have said, gosh, I wish I was born in a different time. I'd have been happier in the 1800s. Or man, I wish I could have lived in the 1950s or something like that. Can I tell you this? Do you know what moment you live in? The very one God designed you for. And you live in this moment in time, whether you like it or not, because of what he wants to work out and do in your life. Here's what I want you to see. This is our moment. This is the time and place that God has put us in as individuals and as his church. So know this, that in times of seismic change, this is our moment of confidence. Is the world changing around us? Absolutely it is. 
But we have confidence in this as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ. There's a passage of scripture that I'm gonna read. Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight. And at the end of it, I fully expect you to say amen. You ready? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Right? It's truth. And so in a world of seismic change, he does it. And he's our confidence. Have you ever been, like if you go to an amusement park or, 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 or some special kind of place, have you ever been in one of those IMAX movies where the screen's kind of all around you and you stand there and you watch it and it like, it's like you're out flying, you're on a roller coaster. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know those things? And you go out there and you're, you're standing there, you're watching this thing and you feel like you are right in it. Like you're, you're on this roller coaster and all of a sudden you regret the french fries you just ate. Can I get, there's a stirring inside. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's not real. But everything that's moving feels so real. That's why when you go in those places, what do they have right in front of you? They have a, a railing, right? So that you can hold on to that. With the last people that were in there, take hand sanitizer. You can hold on to that so that you have something to grab hold of even in the midst when it feels like everything is moving around you. Our confidence is not in the things that change. It's in the one who never changes because Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday and, and forever, and you said, amen. amen. So in times of seismic change, we, we as the people of God, th- this is a moment for us to have confidence. And in times of dangerous choice, this is our moment of truth. Even though people uh, are living in a world where you can choose whatever you want to do, the reality is we, we live in God's truth. We hold on to the truth of his word. A lot of times what people will say is, is when you and I might hold on to biblical truth to a point that it's not celebrated, but it's condemned, people will sometimes say, well, Jesus was a person of love. And Jesus wouldn't condemn people. And where's the love of Jesus and the acceptance in your response? Look at this, John chapter one, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, watch this, full of grace and truth. He came with both. Here's love and grace, but I still gotta give you the truth. I I love it when when you go to a restaurant, a place maybe you've never been before, sometimes I'll open up the menu and I'll look at it and be like, you know, I've never had that. Sounds kind of good, I might try that. And when the server comes to the table and you can, you can open the menu and I can, I can point at something and I can be like, um, is this, is, is, what do people think? Is this any good? And every so often, you know, they'll, they'll kind of, they're like, oh yeah, that's great. Or everybody loves it. Or man, that's one of the things that people order the most. Or the other day I, I asked that and they're like, oh, that's my favorite. You need to get that. And sometimes you point and you're like, hey, that, that thing I can't pronounce. What, what, what do you think of that? And they look at you and they go, have you, have you tried the burger? Or they just kind of look at you and they're like, mm. they look around and make sure the manager's not watching. They're like, mm, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hear very good about that. I like that. Don't, don't tell me that something's good if it's not. I'd rather hear the truth. Does that make sense? Because my money's too valuable for me to invest it in something that's going to leave a bad taste in my mouth. Your life is far too valuable to believe something that isn't true that's going to cause damage in your life. So here's the deal. In, in a time of so much dangerous choice, with confidence, 
We know this is a moment where as the people of God, we, we actually have truth. And the other thing I want you to see is that in times of uncertain challenges, this is our moment of hope. That we as the people of God, I, I, just, I would be bold enough to say, are the only place that you can find hope in this world. It's only found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because nothing else will last. And this was at the very heart of who God is. Watch this. Go back to what we talked about, the idea of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Remember this verse that we read? 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. See, see what he did here? He says a thousand years, like a day, a day, like a thousand years. Very next verse, he transitions and says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you see what these moments are all about? They're all about what God wants to do. They're all about his grace and his patience and his love. They're all about people seeing Jesus Christ through your life, you experiencing God's grace. His very picture of time is so that you can know him. That's why we cannot miss these moments. And so many times we say, but, but I don't know what to do. Or what about the moments I've let pass by? Or what about the moments I'm afraid of? Because for some of us, we look at the moment we're in and we're not sure what to do with that moment. Sometimes, let's just be honest, it's easier to sit on the couch, isn't it? Can I tell you what I fully intend to do this afternoon? <laughs> sit on the couch, not talk to you anymore, right? I mean, that's, and it's cool, I love you, I love you. But there are these moments where you just gotta sit on the couch. But if you stay on the couch, you're going to miss the moment because there's something more that God wants to do. You'll see all throughout this, this, uh, this series that the imagery we're going to use is of glass blowing. My friend Ken, that's his, his hobby. He's a glass blower. And so he let us come in while he was um, at work with his, his craft. And we, we shot some footage of that. And you saw that at the beginning here today. And it's fascinating if you've never watched it because you've got the molten glass and they kind of scoop that out. And they're taking it in and out of these furnaces. And the heat, to be quite honest, is oppressive. It's overwhelming to watch this. And it comes out and they, they, they blow the glass and they shape the glass and they work it. And you saw different pieces of this. And so the, the day that we were with him, he was making like a, a stemmed goblet, right? It had, it had a cup and then it had a stem with a base on the bottom was what he was crafting and was working on. It's like two parts. You make the stem and you make the cup part. Well, he was making the cup part. I'm just fascinated watching the whole thing. And he took him, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes and he's, he's working on that thing and he's putting it in the furnace and he's taking it out and he's blowing it and he's shaping it and he's doing this kind of thing and he puts it back in, heats it back up, pulls it back out and he works through this whole thing. Here's the reason why. Because, because when you pull that glass out of the furnace, do you know how long you have to shape it? Just a moment. And you have to seize that moment because if you don't seize it, then it's gone. And then you, you put it back in the furnace and you heat it back up and you pull it out and you shape it again. And it's this constant process of seizing the moments as they come. So for 20, 30 minutes, we, we watched and got footage and I'm asking all kinds of questions and Ken's making this cup. He gets it all done. He gets it all right. And he takes it and he puts it over in this other little box. It's like this heated box that keeps it at just the right temperature so that he can pull it back out and you know, put it on the stem, like continue to work with it. So he takes, he calls it his garage because he parks it in there. 
And he takes this cup and he sticks it over in his garage and he sets it down in there and he turns away. And I just gotta say this, he did everything right. right? He didn't do anything wrong. He was cautious, he was careful, he did everything right. He set that thing in his garage. He turned to go do the next part of the project and as he turned, we heard crack. I know, I was ticked, right? Because I just spent all this time watching Ken make that. And he set it in there and for whatever reason, it just cracked. And I was like, what was that? He said, oh, it just cracked in there. I just, aren't you mad? I am. He says, no, it just, it just happens. I says, you just, you spent 20, 30 minutes just working on that thing, crafting that thing, and it just, it just broke in there. I, I says, this, this isn't cool. I don't like this. What about those, those moments that you think you wasted and, and all that work and all that? And he looked at me and he said this, if you aren't breaking them, you aren't making them. Isn't that good? Look, sometimes they're going to break. And when that happens, you don't give up. You just go back at it. Not every moment is going to be beautiful. Not everything you do is going to be successful. Not everything you try is going to work out the way you think it is. But if you're not making, if you're not breaking them, you're not making them. And you're in a season right now. And I don't want you to just sit on the couch as an individual or for us just to sit on the couch as a church and miss the moment that God has us in because we're afraid we're going to break it. Because if you're not breaking them, you're not making them. Does that make sense? So here's what the challenge is for you to do. You are living in a divine moment. You seize it. In spite of the change, in spite of the choices, in spite of the challenges that are going on, you have the confidence and the truth and the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can I get a? And when we put our confidence in him, when we put our trust in him, we can seize the moments that we're in. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Whether you're in this room or you're watching on a screen somewhere, here's the deal. No music, no standing up, no moving, no hands raised, just a simple question. What are you doing with the moment that you're in? Just between you and God. We'll talk about what this means for us corporately. We'll talk about what this means for us nationally as a church. We'll, we'll look at all that. But for you, in this moment, are you seizing it? Are you making the most of it? Father, we come to you. and We thank you for your word that tells us that in the very concept of time, it's you reaching out to us so that none will perish, but that everyone would come to know you. And we live, God, in this moment in time, a moment that's filled with changes and choices and challenges. But in this moment, we have the confidence and the truth and the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so, God, today we, we confront the moment that we're in and we pledge to make the most of it. Not to sit on the couch and let it pass us by. Not to be afraid that something may break in this moment, because if you're not breaking them, you're not making them. Lord, help us to make the most, to redeem the time, to live in this brief moment in time with no regrets, with our confidence and trust in you, knowing that you are the God who put us in this moment and you are the God who will sustain us and give us your grace in this moment. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. 
Lord, into this moment that we step into, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.